Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. Welcome to the first episode in a special series we're doing focused on the upcoming midterms. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking to people who are closely watching and even working in state and local elections across the country. To kick off the series, I speak with Jessica Post, president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, and how she feels about November and the sometimes underestimated importance of state legislative races. We dive into how the DLCC puts together its strategy, where Democrats are defending majorities, pickup opportunities, and more. And in signature honorable profession style, I also got to ask Jessica about her own journey into campaign and politics. From defending democracy and reproductive freedom to combating climate change, the stakes in the midterm elections could not be higher. And we hope you enjoy this special series. All right, Jessica Post, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited to start with you for what is, uh, as I mentioned in the the intro here, a special election series we're doing to really dive in on what's happening uh, heading into the midterms at the state and local level and, and frankly, the stakes that are up for grabs here this year. So I thought that maybe I'd just start with asking you a super simple question, which is for our listeners who are not aware, you are the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. What is the mission of the DLCC? Our mission at the DLCC is to build democratic power in state legislatures across the country. Our focus is on protecting democratic-held state legislative majorities, winning new state legislative majorities, and building seats. And then, you know, we've recently expanded our aperture to also do a little bit of state Supreme Court races. So as they affect state legislative redistricting, and then we've made an investment this cycle also in the Nevada LG's race, uh, because the Lieutenant Governor in Nevada breaks ties in the state Senate. And that's, of course, one of our targeted states. Interesting. Yeah. I want to unpack a bunch of that about redistricting some other things, but I think I just want to start with a, with a, just a really basic question. You know, you and I have both been working in state and local elected politics for a really long time. And I am just, I think that there's been a, an awakening or maybe a reawakening after Dobbs in particular of the importance and the, the power of state legislatures. So when you're out talking to people, A, do you agree with that? You know, that there's been kind of a, a shift of people's awareness and B, how do you explain what's at stake in this election? I think the biggest shift in awareness probably happened after the 2016 election. I think folks were wondering, well, why can't Donald Trump be held accountable? And then that pointed to U.S. Congress. And then people realized that state legislatures were the ones drawing most of the congressional districts. And that's in part why Congress was gerrymandered because of Republican control of state legislatures across the country. Recently, I think with Dobbs, people are looking for many different solutions. You know, as Democrats, we often think 
that our problems will be fixed by the federal government. But after this U.S. Supreme Court case, it's really clear that what we have to do is win back state legislatures. I do think there's some confusion on behalf of Democratic donors. You know, it's no secret that we could use more resources at the state legislative level. To win a state legislative majority, you have to play in more difficult territory than statewide and national races. So while we've had strong fundraising and record fundraising numbers, we have a really wide map. And I think we could always use more resources. There are some people out there that seem to think that a governor can simply stop a bad abortion bill that had been on the books, but they really can only they can only veto laws that are sent to them, right? They can't take old existing laws off the books. And so that's something we've had to do a lot of explaining about in terms of the levers of power. It seems like the Republicans really understand the levers of power. And we often have to work with Democrats to talk about non-federal levers of power because they're just not as familiar. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And and do you think there are issues that are driving staying on that kind of thought for a minute, like the donor base or the, you know, the national reporters or whatever, kind of the awareness piece. Do you think that there are issues that when you say, you know, you're obviously we're talking about choice, but are there other issues that people are resonating that are resonating with people that like this is, you know, state and local leaders or state legislative leaders, sorry, are on the front lines of X issues. What are the issues that you put forth to make sure people really get what's at stake here? So, you know, two things I think one is the Dobbs decision where with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it's very clear that abortion will be legal or illegal in states based upon state legislative action. So we're very clear about that. And I think that's something people understand nationally. And the second thing is is simply voting rights. Increasingly, we see people nationally looking. The Republicans did everything they could in the state legislative sessions in 2021, as many of as you know, and as many of your listeners know, to roll back voting rights in states. And they passed all these new regulations in response to their big lie, stop the steal narrative. And that's something I think is that's getting picked up nationally, that it's really state legislatures that have made these changes in voting laws and finally will continue to kind of make changes. I think the thing that maybe is misunderstood is how state governments allocate national resources. So thinking about the funds that came down from the American Rescue Plan or the approval of pieces of the infrastructure bill that fall at the state legislative level, a lot of those things are sort of like maybe not completely understood federally. But, you know, we know for sure that Medicaid expansion has been held up in states like Texas, even though there's a ton of federal funding because of state inaction. And that is, I think, something that people don't completely understand that like when there's federal action, often states can block it through not accepting funds, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's super important. I want to get to the map, which is, as you said, is a huge thing right now, right? And I'm really curious about, you know, kind of, obviously you've got 99 legislative chambers, right? With Nebraska being a unicameral and then thousands of state legislative races. So, you know, we've got chambers that we need to hold. We've got chambers that we could flip just at a really basic level. Like how do you think about the strategy of where you're going to focus your efforts and resources? That's such a good question. So we think about it as a long-term path to winning a majority of state legislative chambers or the path to the majority. The first thing we have to do this year is just defend the gains we've made over the past decade and creating durable democratic majorities that can withstand Republican spending. You know that midterm cycles are normally 
historically difficult for the president's party. So we've been very clear-eyed and we've been watching Democratic majorities in places like the Colorado House and Senate, the Maine House and Senate, the Minnesota House, the Nevada Assembly and Senate, and the New Mexico State House. Recently, we've realized that we need to spend funds protecting the Oregon State state legislature as well, as Republicans' funding has increased with them trying to take over the Oregon legislature. And then second, we want to make a play for vulnerable Republican chambers. So we have new improved state legislative lines in places like Michigan. So we're looking at the Michigan House and Senate, the Minnesota State Senate, where we're only down three, and then the New Hampshire House and Senate. And we think New Hampshire specifically is in play because this is a state that believes in abortion rights and their governor has signed an abortion ban. So a lot of the Republican incumbents are on the record supporting this abortion ban in the state and the banning of abortions extremely unpopular in the live free or die state. And then finally, we're looking at reversing Republicans' long-term structural advantage. So looking at places like the Arizona House and Senate, where we didn't get, I think, what we wanted coming out of this independent commission, the Georgia State House, which we've always seen as a long-term play, and then the Pennsylvania House and Senate. So places where Maybe we're um, down in terms of the number of seats or whether the political environment may just be a little bit more challenging this year. But we, again, are looking across the decade to try to figure out what can we win in advance of the 2030 elections. And Pennsylvania, of course, is key to electoral certification. Their state legislative seats will be sworn in before the certification of the U.S. presidential election. So we're looking really to gain seats there and in Michigan, and then to hold on to what we have in these other battleground states, knowing that there may be a contested presidential election that plays out through state legislatures. Yeah. A couple super important points you made right there. One is the redistricting piece, right? I think I'm so happy to hear you talk about kind of the long-term play. I feel I get frustrated sometimes that people can only kind of look at the election in front of us. (laughs) And I think that, you know, that's kind of what gets us into trouble, right? When the redistricting comes around every 10 years, and then we're dealing with lines that are harder than before. So I think that that's a really, I appreciate knowing that that's kind of how you think about things. And then also, like you said, just calling out what we know, which is, you know, the play right now from kind of a legal perspective to give states even more power over, you know, sitting electors or whatever, or denying electors or whatever at the state legislative level and the impact that could have on on the presidential election in 24 and beyond. So thanks for those. I'm wondering, just totally out of curiosity, like, do you think about your work differently if it's a legislative chamber you have to hold versus you have to you know, gain seats? Is that a, is it different or is it just, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of targeting, but kind of the tactics are the same. In some ways, I think the tactics are similar. One thing that we know that we have to do in states where Democrats have the majority is communicate, like, here are the accomplishments that Democrats have had in the legislature. But we know that people are really struggling with cost of living issues right now. We think that we have a really good record to run on based on what some of the Democratic majorities have done on cost of living issues. But we also have to say, hey, we're not done yet. Like there's a lot, there's still a lot of pain out there. We need to do many more things to make things more fair and equitable. So that's, I think, one thing that's different. We also are able to do more communication on what they accomplished during session versus in a Republican majority. We're just able to kind of basically say that the environment was caused by the incumbent Republicans. And then we're able to talk a lot about the flaws that they've had in governing the state. Difficult sometimes when the, you know, we have Democrats, presidential party, but then the state legislature is controlled by Republicans. The outcomes really 
are increasingly different state by state in red states versus blue states. Yeah. Well, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, or or at least I'll ask a question this way, which is, you know, what, just from kind of a, your vantage point of a, and I'm sure it obviously depends state by state, which is kind of where you're going, but, you know, kind of what's your general mood about, about Democrats chances, or, you know, are you seeing any, you know, what's encouraging you, I guess, about our, our message? What's, what do you think is resonating with voters? And maybe on the flip side, I'll ask you what's worrying you, but let's start with kind of the positive. What do you think is moving voters right now, particularly as you think about when, where they're going to vote in terms of state legislative race? What we're definitely hearing is, as our candidates knock on doors, concerns about abortion rights. We're hearing a lot of concerns about their daughters maybe having fewer rights than they did. So that's one big issue that we're hearing as, as voters knock doors. And I think that's something that could bring the political environment more into neutrality. We saw in Kansas that there's been an influx of, there was an influx of additional women voters that were oriented on the abortion issue. And I think we're seeing that in many other states where we're seeing strong voter registration in states like Michigan with strong ballot return data, absentee ballot return data that skews more toward women. And so new registrants who are also voting, that's a really encouraging statistics. But look, it's a midterm election. And so Republicans typically have a turnout advantage because they're furious at having to see President Biden on TV every day. And so the Republicans are more likely to turn out. So if hopefully what we can do with Dobbs is create more of a neutral political environment that allows us to really compete around the margins and not just have a turnout disadvantage, which, you know, we certainly had a turnout disadvantage in 2021 in Virginia, where we had strong rural turnout, which favored the Republicans and Republican precincts. And some of our Democrats just had maybe voted for Biden, opted to not come out to vote. So that's a big goal for us. And we're hoping that by laying those stakes out clearly on abortion rights, that's something that'll be you know, encouraging. We also are encouraging two candidates to tell their personal economic stories. You know, For example, I'll use Darren Camilleri, a New Deal leader who's running in a competitive state Senate district. He is incredibly telegenic. He's really great to camera. And so he's telling the story about being the first you know, Maltese and Latino in the state legislature in in Michigan. But, you know, he was a teacher, right? So you see him in the classroom in some of his ads, really communicating that he understands the struggles of the downriver community outside of Detroit. And so he was able in his prior state house races to overperform President Biden. And I think he's going to overperform just sort of standard Democratic performance this cycle as well, because he's running such a strong campaign. And I think voters really identify with him as a great young leader. Yeah, I love him. And I love that you mentioned him. Thank you. <laughs> There's so, yeah, we were talking a minute ago about you know, there are, we have a lot of overlap of, of state legislators where you deal leaders, of course, who you are helping with the election stuff, which is fantastic. I don't know the answer to this question, actually, but there must have been some special elections in between since 2020. Is that right? And if so, were they instructive in kind of how you're thinking about, you know, the trends? That's a great question. Yes. We had fewer special elections than we had in 2019. But we did have a number of special elections, especially in folks places like Maine, which is a big target, in New Hampshire. And in Maine, we were able to win a number of elections for the state Senate. A woman named Nicole Grahowski overperformed the standard Democratic performance by about 30 points. 
So we've seen really encouraging results in Maine State Senate specials. There was a man named Craig Hickman who won earlier this cycle. They've In Maine, I, I have to give it to them. They've done a really, really good job with candidate recruitment. And then we won a significant, we won some significant House races with, you know, to reference another New Deal leader, Ryan Fechtow, who's the Maine House Speaker, who also serves on our DLCC board. He's They've run really, really good campaigns there. So we've won a number of special elections in both the Maine House and Senate. The other thing that we think is instructive is even before Dobbs, we were in New Hampshire. So New Hampshire, we talked about earlier, they signed, the governor signed this really unpopular abortion ban. And then we were able to run against a Republican in an open seat and say, look, this former Republican legislator has a horrible record on abortion rights. And we were able to win just simply by focusing on abortion rights. So that guided some of our strategy, I think, going into the even pre-Dobbs that that would be a key wedge issue in the 2022 elections. Yeah, super interesting. So our last election question, what are you going to be watching? What would you tell me and our listeners, what should we be watching heading into the midterms from your perspective on kind of to gauge whether or not we should be, you know, cautiously optimistic or super happy or <laughs> tell us how we should feel for the next few uh, 25 days, I guess, uh, based on what we see. I think the first thing is to just try to distinguish the signal from the noise. Obviously, Josh Shapiro and uh, Gresham at Mercy seem to be pulling away with the governor's races in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania. But remember, we have to win in much tougher turf than they do at the gubernatorial level. And, you know, we've needed to define our candidates with fewer resources against the Republican brand. So they pulled specifically out-of-touch opponents. While there are 700 insurrectionists, folks and folks that participated in Stop the Steal, you can see that at dlcc.org backslash threats uh, running across the country. There's still some Republicans that are that are kind of mainstream, even though we view this as Trump's party. So we're challenging some of those folks. Um, and so it is more difficult at our level of the ballot. So I want to make sure that people don't mistake what might be happening in the governor's race for what's happening at our level of the ballot, because the districts are different. You know, we're just in, in different contests. I'll be watching on election night, Nevada Assembly and Senate really closely, both chambers in Minnesota, the Colorado State Senate, and then Pennsylvania to see if we have individual gains. So those will be places. And I should just caution your listeners that, and they they probably know this, but once again, it's going to take a while, I think, to tally up some of these results as mail ballots increase. The other thing that we've seen is Republicans have been bogging down county election offices and the secretary of state with a lot of like unnecessary requests. So there's also, we also are concerned about disruption of this election cycle specifically. So that may cause a delay in the issuing of results. Yeah. I think that's a super important thing to remind people and then to ask you a question about the insurrectionists and stop the steal folks. So thank you for getting that in there. I think it's just important that we continue to remind people that, you know, again, the stakes and, you know, and some of the people who individuals that are running for these really important offices, you know, are frankly not fit to do so. And that's an understatement. So thank you for that. I want to end with a question, Jessica, that is a little bit more about you. As I mentioned earlier to you off camera, my honorable profession, of course, is part of our goal is to make sure that people we talk about the value of public service and how important public service is. And of course, we're usually talking to elected officials, but I love to talk to guests who aren't elected officials who come on um, also about their own kind of career path and how they got into politics. So, I mean, did you always want to aspire to be the president of DLCC uh, <laughs> or how, how did this happen for you? Well, I think like a lot of people in politics, I don't think I knew it was a job growing up. So <laughs> that, that may be part of it. 
So I grew up in the St. Louis suburbs and, you know, there's a concept in Catholicism called a calling, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic. And so my mom was really adamant about kind of me finding my calling. And she would talk a lot about, you know, we'd drive around St. Louis County and we'd talk a lot about the issues of the day. Her brother, my uncle, suffers from mental illness and our grandparents have been really active. They founded the first NAMI chapter in DuPage County, Illinois. And then I... You know, growing up in Missouri, when I was in college, you really saw the state change. So I was a college Democrat. I went out and I volunteered and I knocked doors at, for state legislative races. And we would go all around the state for state legislative special elections. So sort of a bit of a bit of like a prescient prediction <laughs> for the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I really loved it. Right. I really enjoyed talking to voters at their doors. I enjoyed hearing about key issues. And I think as I went on, I realized that my values and ideology aligned with the Democratic Party. And that if I wanted to make, you know, big, meaningful change that I needed to support Democratic candidates and get Democrats elected. And so that was kind of an evolution through my, you know, like any cool middle school kid. I was thinking about like, what <laughs> what political party do I align with? And then doing state legislative races through college, I really, and then after college, I really enjoyed that work. I, you know, went to the DLCC in 2010. We made some, we definitely made some mistakes. We were not well-funded. I was a junior staffer, but really the decision for me to go back to the state legislative level of the ballot happened after I worked at Emily's List. And I was, you know, working with women, some women who would have made amazing members of Congress, like a woman named Pam Burns, who had been a former Michigan state rep. She would have been such a good member of Congress, but she was running in a district that was just not winnable, very difficult district that she was running in. And it, I think it took, we still actually don't hold that district actually congressionally, but I realized like, look, if we really want to make this change, we have to win at the state legislative level. We have to get a better funded DLCC on the books and we have to increase, you know, both increase resources when I came back to the LCC in 2016, we were a $16 million organization. We'll spend more than $53 million this cycle. So we've had to scale quite a bit to meet the needs of state legislators across the country. But it's, you know, it's been the honor of my life to do it. And it's been so worth it. It's really been so worth it to see, even though state legislatures will break your heart with, with, with redistricting and and everything else, but it's been so inspiring to see so many folks ascend into leadership. And the reward that I get is really when our Democrats take majorities and are able to pass meaningful legislation. That's really why I get up in the morning and do this work every day. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you. First of all, I feel like we're twins from another mother. I don't know. I just, like, <laughs> you're my person. I agree with everything you just said. It's exactly why I do what I do. So I'm so happy that you shared that. And I just want to thank you, first of all. I mean, gosh, you've done such a great job at the DLCC leading that organization and the work you all do, your team is so important. So from another member of the Democratic family, just thank you for all that you're doing. And, and I'm glad that collectively we can make the case to our listeners and beyond that state and local elections and in particular state legislative elections matter a lot and hopefully get more people understanding that and getting involved. So really thank you so much for being with me today and kind of giving us a lay of the land of what to expect and keep our eyes on heading into November and just you know, best of luck. We're we're in the down the home stretch. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. And and thanks for all you do at New Deal for our state legislative leaders. Like we're I know so many of them are so proud to have been selected as as New Deal Democrats. So I really appreciate that too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. 
please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.